0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the inquiry into the Emergencies Act continues, Jim Watson has made some troubling statements on the podium about lacking aid from the federal and provincial governments. Michael Kempe, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa, will join us and break it down. An illuminating new study from CanAge shows that Canada is unprepared for a massive rise in dementia. Laura tamblin watts who's the CEO of CanAge, joins us for that. And an Edmonton man is now serving 20 years in an American prison for terrorism charges. All coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A lot of talk about what was uh, exposed, I guess, is maybe the best word, uh, at the uh, inquiry about uh, what happened in Ottawa, of course, last February. And uh, there's a, an awful lot of concern about some of the comments made by Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson about, uh, well, how they analyzed this situation in the first place. Uh, and uh, please for help that apparently went unanswered from the federal and provincial governments, uh, according to Mayor Watson anyway, uh, to uh, try to get down to exactly the nitty gritty of what was said here and, and just what was going on. I'm so please to welcome back to the program uh, Michael Kempke. Uh, Michael, of course, is an associate professor of criminology. At the University of Ottawa, uh, Professor, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today. Thanks, Bill. I don't, I don't know, Michael, if we can even say we were shocked by what you heard yesterday. Because I think shock happened a few days ago, and we're just getting levels of that now. Uh, but very troubling testimony about Mayor Watson and and their planning or lack thereof as as this thing was approaching Ottawa.
1: Yes, uh, we talk about a lack of shock at this point. I don't think that people will be surprised by much at this point, just the level of misunderstanding, the level of mismanagement of information. Uh, It seems to have been at every level of government in every institution, police, police oversight and so forth. And I think what that tells us is that everybody involved was operating, following protocols from an old paradigm of security that just no longer applies to the realities of our situation.
0: Well, and I think that was just, uh, probably reflected in uh, some of the comments that Mayor Watson said. And, and he was well, speaking on behalf of then police Chief slowly, too, suggesting that, look, we had a farmer's uh, thing here a couple of weeks ago, the, a rally, and it, it lasted a day. And then they went home. I'm sure that's what's going to be here, uh, which seemed, though, to fly in the face of some of the intelligence they had on this. But I guess they just figured, as you say, this is the protocol. This is the this is the template that we're going to use. And we're just going to apply it again.
1: Well, that's exactly it. You know, I heard Marike Walsh uh, over at the Globe and Mail say that one of the critical questions is who knew what and when. And to that, I would add, and who did they tell? Because it seems that a lot of the players had information, very important information at early stages that they just didn't pass along to people who could have helped. One of the best examples is the city manager in Ottawa at City Hall, Steve Kenalakos, Steve Kay, as he goes by in, in Ottawa. He was told by people at the province and the federal government that one of the major causes of delay for not getting police officers seconded from OPP and RCMP was they had concerns that Peter Slowly and his team's plan was just not adequate. Then the commission lawyers asked Steve Kay, well, who did you tell that to? Did you tell the police services board? Did you tell Peter slowly himself or raise this issue with them? And he said, oh, goodness, no, the city manager does not get involved in police governance or in talking directly to the chief of police. Uh, you know, I don't want to interfere in operations. I understand. I'm not blaming him or there were others who had a similar view. What I'm saying is. In fact, there's nothing illegal or improper about he having or anyone else having passed that information along to the board and to the chief, if for no other reason than if it wasn't true, the chief of police, Peter Slowly could have provided an answer to the people who had concerns, they could have improved the plan maybe, and then those officers could have gotten here sooner. This is what the new paradigm of managing information integrated across municipal government, the boards, and police agencies is going to look
0: like. So, what the attitude, as you said, Michael, was when there's this, a lack of sharing of information here? Is it uh, they hey, that's not my job, or do they just not think it's it's germane to the situation? So, there's
1: charitable and less charitable interpretations. The charitable interpretation is they're following what has been their protocol for many years, and they feel they're doing the right thing. So, as Steve K said. I don't get involved in operational matters, that would be inappropriate. I understand that sentiment, it's not entirely legally accurate, but that's the sentiment that most people in his position, equivalent jobs across the province in the municipalities would give you. So one is the charitable interpretation, not a full understanding, but a typical understanding. Less charitable is people don't wanna get involved in any way in policing or security issues or emergencies passing along information and getting themselves in the mix, because if things go wrong, then they are responsible. So this is the interpretation that we saw in the communication between the mayor, Jim Watson, and the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, about Doug Ford's, the premier of Ontario's reluctance to get involved. They said, you know, for political reasons, this guy just doesn't want to touch it. If things go sideways, then he'll have to wear it. He'll be accountable. He may lose support in communities that have questions about vaccine mandates. In other words, politicians are very reluctant and they hide behind operational independence where they simply don't want to get involved and take the risk.
0: This is a question, and maybe you can clarify this for us, because I have been a number of people ask me about this, uh, and and I'm, I've am i got some questions about this too. And you just mentioned the vaccine mandates, the, the masking mandates, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And and whether you agree or disagree with those policies, I'm not going to say is immaterial uh, because those were the stated reasons of at least some of the people that showed up in Ottawa uh, for for the protests. But at what point, though, Michael, do the people like the chief of police, the city manager and the mayor say, I don't care why they're here. We have to control this. Uh, you You know, whether you're on which side of the issue is immaterial. What are we doing to protect our city? And I don't know that too many people were asking that question.
1: Well, that's just it. It's the minute you start getting into damage to property and threats to the security of citizens, it stops being in any way a question about why are people here? It's about their comportment, the behaviors, the nature of the protest purely. So that's the first issue. We had mass volumes of people in the streets of Ottawa. We've heard testimony from people who were in the mix downtown that they were unable to go about their essential daily business, you know, getting to the the famous stories now of being unable to get to cancer treatments, people with vision impairment simply being unable to navigate the streets because of the constant noise of, of horn honking and so forth. So you get to that. But then the secondary security question is, who else is here other than the people who are having a good time on the bouncy castles and in the hot tubs and protesting vaccine mandates? We're going to learn more about that in the weeks to come, that there were many layers to this protest, as we've been saying all along. When there's a large protest going, opportunistic people with radical ideologies attach themselves to the protest, they infiltrate, they instigate, they manipulate the movement of crowds in such a way to produce uh, conflict with the police in the city. Many people who were there behind the scenes wanted a violent confrontation with the state because that in a way helps prove their point that we're living in this horrible, tyrannical government that oversteps and would help recruit people to their radical cause. So this is the calculation once they realize what's happening on the ground on the part of police and security agencies. And this is a very different animal than what we've seen in Canada before. And we saw Ottawa police, OPP, RCMP, CSIS, all struggling to put together a plan to deal with this without giving that huge violent confrontation that some people were spoiling for
0: oh yeah and looking you know to to get that i mean that's all they wanted to do is be on you know the the six o'clock news that night with police pushing them around but i'm i'm concerned about the information sharing and i'm glad you're focusing on that because it i think it's one of the key elements to this because there was as we're finding out now some details we know for instance that Csis had had said look at uh whatever you're in this this you know this trucker thing for Uh, We do know that these extreme groups are using this as a recruitment tool for some of their their agencies, and and CSIS knew that. I don't know if they told anybody in Ottawa. Uh, The people in Ottawa also, as we found out yesterday, the mayor at least, and and I don't know about the city manager, were told by the Hotel Association that they're not here for the weekend. These people are booking day hotel rooms for 30 to 60 days. So they should have known right then and there by, you know, that information that this was this was going to be something that was going to be going on for the long haul. So this was not a two-day event.
1: Well, no, and in retrospect, I mean, that really seems like a key piece of evidence to anybody who looks at it now, having seen the protest. Say, so, well, we saw this thing happen. It was huge and, and massive and went on and on and on. And oh my goodness, here there was this warning from the hotel association saying that 10,000 people were looking for rooms for an extended period of time how do we not piece this together well it makes sense to us now because our frame of reference our paradigm has shifted we're aware and awake to the reality that we've got groups in our society who are prepared to undertake this scale of protest this con- this idea or conceptual possibility did not exist for us in January early January 2022 So that little piece of information, it's what in security studies they call early warning failure, where when you filter information through an old framework or an old paradigm, you don't understand the significance of it. So at the time, you heard, for example, Mayor Watson and his head of the city, Steve Kay, uh, and his head of uh, staff, Serge Arpin, saying, well, we get alerts all the time about things that are going on in Ottawa, we, we, we have no real way of knowing what is serious and what is not serious. Today, if you got that warning from the Hotel Association, right away you would snap to attention and say, here we go again, we've seen this before, let's get ready. In early January 2022, that critical piece of information just got
0: shuffled through the filter in the wrong way. Uh, and we saw the result of that. And and how many times have... I'm especially in, in, in your area of expertise here, have we seen tragic circumstances? And in hindsight, boy, if, if this person had only told this person about that. I mean, we found out about so many different things, about 9-11, for instance. We found out about uh, so many things that are happening in this country, too, where even even intelligence agencies seem reticent to share information a lot of the time. And it, it seems to be a major problem here.
1: That is the problem. Our security, and these, when I speak to my sources inside national security and police organizations and, and every other safety uh, body, they will tell you that what we're doing right now in terms of our programs, our laws, our frameworks, reflects the security reality of about five years ago. And every time we catch up to the new threats to security, the ground has shifted again. People with bad intentions have moved on to new areas. In other words, we're always already behind. So we, for example, you say 9-11. Prior to 9-11, we thought our main threats to national security was uh, basically nuclear war on the part of the great powers of the world. And then we realized, my goodness, actually airplanes can become missiles and weapons of the weak and Terror cells, minor terror cells around the world can extract huge damage upon us. And we focused on that for many years. Now we see in the situation of Ottawa, my goodness, what about domestic groups, ideologically violent extremists on the far right and to a lesser degree, but still there on the far left, who can use things like trucks or farm machinery or just ordinary ordinary transport items to bring our cities to a halt? The paradigm has again shifted. Now, we are going to catch up, but the threat will always be that those with bad intentions will simply shift so that we're always playing catch-up.
0: So is there any possibility then at some point that we could become proactive as opposed to reactive to these circumstances?
1: Yes. Uh, Good partnership between our security agencies, our intelligence services, uh, academia, and people on the ground I mean, we can be scanning and doing risk assessments uh, almost, you know, constantly to put together what are the next threats likely coming down the pipe? How do we need to be proactive and get ready? We already basically know that violent extremism, politically motivated, is on the rise. So this is a rising trend that we need to get out in front of. We know that social media and disinformation is a key cog in this approach. So we need to get out in front before we are swamped in disinformation. In a way, I think that our uh, Public Order Emergencies Commission is early enough in this process that we're going to learn some valuable lessons and head it off at the pass a little bit, unlike in the United States where disinformation has infiltrated their media and social media and their conventional political process to such a degree that their January 6th inquiries are almost a little bit late. We're earlier. We're ahead of the curve. We are going in the direction of the United States, where disinformation and extremism can infiltrate our state institutions even further than it already has. But with this inquiry, I'm hopeful we can head it off at the past.
0: Uh, As am I. Uh, Michael, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you kindly. That's Associate Professor, of course, of Criminology, Michael Kempe, uh, from the University of Ottawa. And, of course, that hearing continues and will for quite some time. And uh, as uh, the pres- professor mentioned, uh, we're going to hear in the coming days and weeks, I suppose, from some of those security agencies, including CSIS and the RCMP, about what they knew and who else knew it at the time. It's going to get a lot dirtier, I think, as we go along here. But as the professor says, if we learn from this, well, maybe that's a, a silver lining and a pretty dark cloud that's hanging over us right now. You're listening to the
1: Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Well, listen, it happens to all of us. You you walk into the living room and say, what did I come in here for? Uh, you think, gee, what's, what's going on? Uh, but memory loss and, and, and simple memory loss, I mean, that's that's part of aging. That happens to all of us from time to time. But... How do you determine whether it's just ordinarily memory loss or there's something more going on here? Is it is it the onset of dementia? Uh, it's a growing problem in this country. It's a growing problem globally, quite frankly. And a, a new report out suggests uh, Canada is not doing a very good job of preparing for the onset of dementia as more and more people are going to be diagnosed with it. And uh, the diagnosis is going to be a bit of a problem, too, as we're going to find out in just a minute. To uh, shed some light on this, we're so pleased to welcome to the program uh, Laura Tamblyn Watts, who is the CEO of Can Age. Uh, Laura, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Let's let's talk a little bit about this and 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 about dementia and aging. I mean, some of the stats here that I've, I've discovered that you've talked about in the report here, uh, I think really underscore just how much of a, 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 a problem we're going to have going forward if we don't have this i mean the one that jumped out at me is 40 percent of doctors feel equipped to be able to even diagnose dementia uh that tells you that 60 percent don't have uh that ability uh and you know the that leads to the problem and the concern about well how many people are not going to be diagnosed properly because of that We've, we've got some catching up to do i think
2: we have a lot of catching up to do and unfortunately because we're not moving forward the rise in dementia makes it that we're moving backwards yet more than 60 percent of doctors as you say don't feel confident in even recognizing or diagnosing dementia let alone really treating it in any particular way and as we know family doctors are getting more rare and geriatricians are almost impossible to find. So really, is this an incredibly complicated issue that we are not addressing? Though this report does indicate that there are a number of key areas where we could improve fairly quickly.
0: Which it, it comes to education, I guess, to a certain extent, doesn't it? I mean, you know. Uh- you know, okay, what 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 do I need to do in my life to make sure that I, I do every possible to, to prevent this or to mitigate this? I don't know. I, I don't think I've ever had that discussion. I've got a very good relationship with my physician, my family doctor, but it, it's never come up in the conversation. It probably should.
2: And the degree of stigma is so profound that often doctors don't bring it up in their conversations because they don't want to be seen as offending their their patients. Patients don't even want to bring it up because they're so afraid of getting a diagnosis of dementia and the stigma associated with that is so profound. And yet we know that early detection is the key. And to the degree that we have any treatments at all for dementia, the medications need to be given really at the very beginning so that early diagnosis diagnosis is critical the good news is you know eating right and exercising is one of the best things that you can do for any health issue and that remains true with dementia as well but there are many kinds of dementia uh, some of which can be far more complicated and some of which we can actively prevent from good health measures but of course you never know which kind you might get
0: unless you diagnose properly which kind of brings us full circle again doesn't it uh, the really other
2: element,
0: does, the, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the diagnosis, and of course, preparing physicians for that sort of thing, and 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 ha- having a, an understanding. But you talked about stigma, and I, I think that's an important part of this, to, because I know if, if you play word association, if I were to go and ask ten people right now, you know, what what is what is dementia? That's well, an old people's disease. I'm I'm mm-hmm. I'm not that old. I I don't have to worry about that for years and years. Uh, that's not necessarily the case, is it?
2: No, dementia, of course, can happen at any time. It does happen more later on. That's true. But what we see is an increase in early onsets of dementia as well. So different kinds of dementia can affect you at different times. One of the key things to know is that 10 years typically passes where you have what we call mild cognitive impairment before you would ever get a real diagnosis of dementia. And that's why this report is so important. It finds that those pieces of information in the public sphere are not existing the way that we want to. Cues for caregivers for the 75% of dementia patients or people living with dementia are being cared for at home in the community by family and friends with no particular supports available and home care workers don't necessarily have specialist training in dementia as well. So this is one of the biggest reasons people need care and yet it's the one area that we have the least possible care.
0: Well, it's uh, I guess with another one we could throw onto that stack of concerns about home care or lack of home care. I, I know that debate's been going on for quite some time, but this is this is one of the important elements to this: uh, is having qualified, trained people that can can deal with these particular circumstances. Uh, how do you how do you? I, I'm not asking you to diagnose. Uh, that's that's a, a, obviously something between the physician and, and the patient, but. I just mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, you know, where did I leave my keys? Mm-hmm. Hey, what am I doing here? That, that happens. That's everyday life. I mean, you know, we're, we're bustling and hustling all over the place. and we. But how? at what point do you say, wait a minute, maybe I've got a problem here?
2: If you don't know where you've kept your keys, that's fine. I don't know where my keys either. If you're in the car holding the keys and you don't know what they do, that's a problem. If you're losing the odd... You know, name or place that you can't quickly recall, that's fine. That's a normal part of aging. If you can't remember where you are, how you got there, or how to get home, that's going to be much more likely to be dementia. It is important to ensure that we destigmatize it, as you say. And part of that destigmatization means that we have to be willing to talk about it. And this report says we need to make sure that we're. Putting pushing our government. Ontario, as an example, does not even have a dementia strategy and it is not one of the primary health issues or even one of the primary social issues. So we really need to focus on the fact that this province and the rest of the country are falling really behind, not just the current needs, but the imminent future needs.
0: Why are we lagging behind? I mean, we're, we're getting smarter. I think, as you mentioned, we're learning more uh, about how to look after our bodies. We know that there are certain things that we have to do to make sure uh, that we're maintaining good cardiac health or lung health or you know respiratory health. Why don't we talk about brain health?
2: Brain health is one of those areas that we somehow treated as separate. And of course, it is not. The more that we do to fight obesity, to get up off the couch and move, the more that we get our vaccines and stay healthy and well and and stay socially engaged. These are things that can help prevent or at least kind of resist some of the dementia indicators. It doesn't mean that you may not get dementia, but these are clarified things that we can do to support brain health. We all saw through the COVID-19 crisis, the huge impact social isolation and loneliness had on people, specifically older people. And we were actually able to see that people with dementia got significantly worse faster because of the lack of social engagement and moving. So those are really important things that we can do. Keeping active and keeping socially engaged is critical, but also making sure that you recognize the signs and you get out there to make sure that you're able to get the treatment and engagement that you need to support an early diagnosis and living well with dementia
0: what about other factors involved in this and I'm thinking things like like head injuries for instance and and, and I know that's that's a different separate part. Yeah. but can that accelerate this process
2: All kinds of things can accelerate. You know, we often talk about Alzheimer's disease as the one that we use almost interchangeably with the word dementia, but it's actually only one kind of dementia. We have, uh, we were talking about cardiovascular health. So vascular dementia is a particular kind that we look at. Lewy body is often associated with Parkinson's disease. We have uh, Karsakoff's, which is often associated with alcoholism. And then there are different kinds of dementia that can be correlated to impact. Uh, as you're talking about concussion being kinds of those impacts. So a wide number of things can go into uh, the origin of a dementia diagnosis, but also things that we do to ourselves or in terms of other chronic conditions that can make a big difference as well, which is why this report talks about chronic conditions and other types of uh, health supports. And I have to say, Ontario is not doing very well in those as well.
0: Well, in the absence of a strategy, I guess, the, you know, uh, that, that that's going to be the end result on this. And the reason I brought the head injuries thing is because there's so much news these days about ex-athletes, former athletes that uh, have mm-hmm. had some long-term problems. And we've a number of them, of course, have had lo- uh, onset dementia, of course. And there's mm-hmm. always this question, well, what, you know, what, d- is it cause and effect? And uh, I guess there is some evidence that that, yes. that can happen in situations like that. So what do we do as we age? I mean, we're all going to get older. Uh, And uh, we were living longer, thankfully. That's the good news. You know, I mean, just talking about statistics and pension plans a little while ago, uh, you know, the reason Canada Pension Plan used 65 as a benchmark when they, because people, men especially, didn't live much past 70. Uh, We're we're doing better at that. But that means we're going to be more prone to things like this, which means we have to be on the lookout for them
2: we absolutely do it's it's a good news bad news story so the good news is we're living longer and healthier and and that's great the bad news is we're not doing the planning that we need in order to live better and healthier you talked about financial as one aspect of that but also of course with our health status and those preventive health measures are critically important that we um can get things checked early on. And again, that's the problem. If you go to your doctor and they don't feel confident, and more than 60% don't, you're not getting the types of screening that we need. So. I think it's really helpful if we think about dementia and oncology as comparators. We do a good job with cancer. We know about what cancers are. We've got good reliable information on government websites. We have navigators and we have areas of speciality. We all know that early diagnosis is a key part and that, you know, sometimes the prognosis can be better or worse, but finding out early and supporting patients and caregivers is key. Really very, little of any of that exists for dementia and yet dementia as you have said is going to be such a hugely prevalent issue as we are aging particularly in the over 85 categories so as I say because we're not moving forward based on the numbers we're actually moving backwards
0: is there anybody that's doing it right doing it well that we can learn from here
2: There are. We have seen the Netherlands and particularly the Nordic countries doing it very well. So care at home, it's not just home care where you might get a bath once a week or something like that. We're talking about physicians, nurses, social engagement coming to the home and supporting people, making sure that the communities are dementia friendly and BC has actually been a leader for that. In particular, the BC Alzheimer's Society has created a whole dementia friendly process for communities and that's really been great leadership from the BC Alzheimer's Association and the British Columbia government generally. And we're also seeing, you know, the Netherlands, We you may have heard about the dementia villages where people yeah. are living in little uh, villages and communities but they're actually people who have cognitive impairment supporters and caregivers are there in everyday clothes they're not in the white coats looking like they're in a healthcare system and these are wonderful types of programs so we're just starting to do that we have a couple in canada but nowhere near where we need to so again more care at home more dementia villages and more normalization of dementias in the community
0: Well, and there's got to be, as you said, an education component to this too. I'm I'm sure our listening audience right now, I'm sure there's somebody you know uh, a neighbor, a, a relative, something who may be going through this, or you know, maybe one of their parents is going through this, and the frustration is, well, how do I deal with it? You know, what do I do? Uh, you know, wh- how do I react when when they're having an episode or they forget something? Uh, so, th- th- there's got to be a team effort here, I would think, to bring th- th- these people in in line here, so that th- we have an understanding as to what's going on and why it's going on and what we can do about it.
2: Absolutely. It's so important to acknowledge what they're saying, even if it's not maybe making sense to you or what you think of as the strict truth as you know it. Acknowledge what they're saying. Try to listen to what they're trying to share with you. They may call you their sister rather than their daughter, but acknowledge that it's a relationship. And if they're fixated or angry or upset, acknowledge something is making them probably scared or extra confused. Don't come at people from behind. It can be very surprising. Come at people from the side. Lead perhaps with a gentle hand on the upper shoulder so people know that you're there and can feel calm. Put them in a place where they feel more safe. You know, I think we're learning a lot from people with autism about some of those newer neurodiverse triggers. And a lot of those learnings can be used with people with dementia as well. But don't argue. Support affirm and redirect but again unless we know what we're looking for and can get healthcare systems actually to think about dementia and our healthcare providers to know how to diagnose it and feel confident we're all going to be kind of left on our own so we think that this report is a, a real landmark because it holds a mirror up to government and says this is where we are we have to do better
0: it's the seventh leading cause of death. I, I mean, though that's a, a, a cold reality that we have to accept. Uh, so we have to learn to deal with this.
2: It is a terminal disease, but there are new therapies that are coming out, and we're actually quite hopeful that we might be able to really make some significant treatment advancements in the next five years. Even there's some uh, molecules and medications which are right now in the clinical trial stage there's a lot of hope in this area and again one of the reasons I think people don't want to get that diagnosis is that they feel that it's going to make them into a vegetable or they're going to be irrelevant or they're worried about it and really what it is it's a diagnosis that you need to get for a condition that people have and just as you say I don't know anyone who doesn't know someone with dementia so this is a kitchen table issue this is an everyone's family issue and we need to make sure that the treatments and supports are there and again at least at the beginning can we get governments to put good information on the website i think they could at least start there
0: well exactly Uh, and you know just saying i don't want to find out i don't want the diagnosis that doesn't make it go away does it
2: No, it doesn't make it go away. And what's going to happen is you're going to get more complex um, disease presentation because you're not getting treatments and help and support, right? So if you find out that you have dementia, most people actually feel relieved, even if they're very worried about getting it, because they know that there's something there that can be supported and treated, and that there are ways of navigating the world where you can live a very good quality of life. It is, however, a terminal illness and it is a really challenging one so making sure that we're actually taking care getting whatever treatments and support early on will make things better later as well
0: I I know there's a lot of treatments and a lot of uh, things available Uh, the the, the cognitive brain health assessment I know uh, was Mm -hmm. mentioned in some of the literature as well so uh, we're just about out of time here at at this point Laura but uh, where can people go to get more information and, and at least start that conversation
2: I'm a firm believer in, in the Alzheimer's societies of each of our provinces. We do have great supports. It's our not-for-profit organization, though. It's not government, so they try to lean in and do what they can. I'd say start there first. They have a great support system called First Link, and everyone across the country can help get that information to the people who need it most by going to the Alzheimer's societies and finding their First Link program
0: uh such a timely topic and, and i'm so glad you had some time to talk about this especially about this report too uh laura uh, from uh, uh ceo of can age of course thank you so much for the great work that you do and uh I, hopefully we can stay in touch and hopefully we will with this conversation start those conversations around that kitchen table too thanks laura thank you laura tamblin watts from uh, can age
1: you're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: If we've learned one thing over the last couple of years, it's that uh, terrorism is not something that happens over there. It's it's all around us, and we have to be paying attention to the signs of that. Uh, another example of that uh, recently with the story out of Edmonton that we're going to talk to with our next guest, uh, Phil Gursky, who, of course, is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. is a former CSIS analyst and author of a book called The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism. In Canada from Confederation to the present. Uh, Phil, thanks for joining us. Glad you could be with us today. Good morning, Bill, sir. How are you today? I'm doing well, and I wanted to reference the book. Well, you and I have talked about it in the past. It's, it's a yep. great read, and Thank I think you. it gives a, a pretty strong perspective. Uh, but a similar situation uh, from another gentleman that you talk about in the book from Edmonton. Uh, the, one of The, the, the story that the, the, got the interest peaked here, of course, uh, is an Edmonton man who directly funded violent acts of terrorism uh, has been sentenced and extradited to the United States and sentenced there. Uh, but this is not the first time something like this has happened, uh, and it... Kind of begs the question, uh, are we in this country reticent to actually lay terrorism charges or talk about terrorism here? I mean, there are people that do bad things and we can charge them uh, for doing those bad things. But the terrorism thing seems to be something that, that law enforcement authorities sometimes seem a little hesitant to get involved in.
3: Yeah, I don't know if I'd say it was law enforcement, Bill. I'm kind of thinking more it's the Crown, so the prosecution. And we've had a very checkered history in this country in the sense of, in some cases, the, the Crown decides to delay terrorism charges and does so successfully. We've had some very good results in court cases where people have been found guilty of committing acts of terrorism or planning acts of terrorism. And on the other hand, uh, we get some curious decisions by the Crown not to, to charge with terrorism. So you, you, you referenced that, Lieutenant. And by the way, thanks for referencing the book. Um so back in 2017, Bill, in October, there was a guy that ran over an Evan police officer outside of Commonwealth Stadium, yeah. and then went out and tried to stab him, and luckily the police officer had a, a vest on him, he wasn't, it wasn't too badly hurt, he'd been hit by the car so he was injured, but then he went down to Jasper Ave in Edmonton, he, he, he hit four more people injuring them, luckily no one died, he had an ISIS flag on his dash, Bill, and when, the, when he got to court, the Crown elected not to charge him with terrorism, he was found guilty uh, in, 19, in 2019 on five counts of attempted murder and dangerous driving. So having an ISIS flag on your dashboard doesn't make you a terrorist? I mean, what's going on in this country?
0: Well, and, and we need to put this in context, and I know you, you went into greater detail in the book about this. Uh, this is when that seemed to be something fashionable. Remember, we just had it on London Bridge uh, not too long yeah. before that. Uh, where a number of people were killed uh, when somebody just decided to drive their vehicle right down London Bridge and uh, yeah. basically trying to pick off terrorists. And, and Nice, France, I mean, there were some horrific examples of that sort of thing. So this, they couldn't look at this in isolation and say, oh, that's, that's unusual. Oh, yeah, nicest flag? Well, yeah, because the, there seemed to be a pattern that was developing at that time.
3: Uh, absolutely. Barcelona was the same thing. It was all yeah. around the world where he had these vehicular attacks. And these people either were... Um, would confess that they were supporters of Islamic State or Al Qaeda or whatever, or in some cases had returned from fighting in the Middle East. Or, and, you know, you look at the case of the half depot, he was the guy in Parliament Hill in October 2014. He wanted to go join the group, but he had his passport seized by Passport Canada. So we used to say in the security business, Bill, you know, if I can't do it there, I'll just do it here. If you're going to prevent me from leaving the country to to achieve my life's goals of becoming a terrorist and dying in a hail of bullets, well, I guess I'll just attack people here in Canada or in Spain or in France, whatever. And, And you're right, it was something that security services and law enforcement were well apprised of, in the middle to, in the middle of the 2010s, people think maybe that threat's gone away. I like to have a conversation with people because it certainly hasn't. But no, I, I think there certainly were enough precedents out there that you know when you're the prosecution or the crown, you say, okay, is this part of a trend? And if so, uh, is it in our interest to actually lay terrorism charges? Now, in some cases, you don't go with terrorism because it's harder to prove. You're trying to prove the mentality as opposed to the act itself, and I understand that. But in this case, in the uh, Commonwealth Stadium attack, uh, to me, it it, it boggles my mind why a guy who clearly was doing something on behalf of ISIS, whether ISIS knew he exists or not is irrelevant, he certainly saw himself as part of ISIS, tried to kill five people, and yet he wasn't called a terrorist. It's, it's rather bizarre.
0: Well, and the, the more recent one that we're uh, talking about here, again, it was Edmonton, and, and we're looking at, at the results of this. Uh, he was actually extradited to the United States, sentenced to 20 years in prison. Uh, for helping to at least a half dozen Canadians and Americans mm-hmm. to join the Islamic State group in Syria uh, in 2013 and 2014. Uh, so who knew this guy? Who knew what he was doing? Clearly the U.S. authorities were tracking this. Uh, did they alert the, the Canadians and say, hey, we need your help on this? Or the Canadian uh, intelligence services aware of this going on? I mean, I know, as you say, there are some people that they monitor on a consistent basis. Uh, this guy was a bad actor.
3: Yeah, it, you know when I looked at the name Bill, it, it didn't say anything t- to me directly because, of course, I was so the, according to the article, this was back in twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, that he was actually helping these half dozen teams of Americans join ISIS in Syria. I was at thesis at the time, and if I knew, but I couldn't tell you. I'd have to kill you. I won't do that. Do that to you, Bill. But no, um, the you. name wasn't meaning to me. But I'd be very surprised if, in fact, this this name was had not kind of crossed our radar at the time. Whether it was based on a tip from the Americans, which is happens all the time. There's a lot of sharing of intelligence between the United States and Canada It has not since you know since the Second World War, part of the you know the Five Eyes. We talk an awful lot about. I'd be very surprised if he hadn't sort of you know crossed some kind of tripwire in terms of our ability to monitor potential threats in Canada, potentially Canadians that are joining terrorist groups. But I, I, I can't say that we did know about him. But, you know, whether we learned about it from the Americans' bill or learned about it from our own investigations is rather irrelevant. The fact is is that, you know, the intelligence was was, was there. It was usable. Uh, and then so the question that I think begs itself at this point is that if we had the intelligence and we had the information, why in heaven's name did we extradite a Canadian to the United States for trial. I mean, supporting ISIS is a crime in Canada, too. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't the Crown and the Canadian authorities say, we'll arrest him, we'll charge him, we'll try him? It's a, it's a very, very odd situation from my perspective.
0: Well, especially when you look at this track record here, and I, I know that we're finding about this after it was all presented in court, but somebody has gathered this information. Uh, he provided money to four of his cousins, uh, three from Edmonton and, and one from Minneapolis to join ISIS. And actually they went over there and they did fight uh, for ISIS. I believe they were all killed in battle. Uh, In those conflicts, Uh, robbed a jewelry store to uh, raise funds uh, to to send over there for the foreign fighters, too. I mean, there's a record here, isn't there, of of, of behavior. And and I guess the question out of all this, Phil, is what boxes do you have to check to say, yeah, we're dealing with a a potential terrorist here as opposed to uh, a bank robber?
3: Yeah, you're right. I think there were a lot of boxes ticked. And you remember, you know, remember the old Al Capone uh, excuse bill? They got him on tax evasion as opposed to organized crime back in the 30s in the States. You know, he certainly committed crimes in Edmonton. He committed crimes on Canadian soil. And one would think that it's in the best interest of Canadians when they uh, suffer a crime, be it a bank robbery or a violent crime, that we as Canadians see justice done in Canada, because that's where the crimes were committed, and that's where the offences took place, and that's where the harm was done. But to me, if the intelligence was available to suggest that they weren't just robbing banks to you know, get money and buy a, buy an Audi or buy a Porsche, but were doing it to facilitate travel to Iraq or Syria to join Islamic State, which was a heinous terrorist group, as you and I both know, that that to me would have been more than enough information to suggest that okay we're going to launch this investigation here now the one fly in the ointment possibly here Bill is was it intelligence or evidence and and you and know, I have talked about this before the CSIS you know that I work for we don't collect evidence we collect intelligence and intelligence is not evidentiary in nature and doesn't use in Canadian court but having said that there are mechanisms whereby CSIS can say to the RCMP nudge nudge wink wink, wink Phil Gursky's a bad guy. Let the RCMP pick up the ball and run their own independent investigation, not, not, not joint, independent investigation as to what what this guy is up to. I'd like to think that that is poss- would have been possible in this case, but again, I don't have access to what was known at the time. But it's certainly there seemed to be a lot of questions being raised here about why the information that was available about this person's activities in Edmonton to facilitate a, a terrorist group like ISIS that wasn't acted upon to make this uh, a Canadian court case and, uh, and a Canadian conviction.
0: Well, and especially as you say, there seem to be a whole series of things going on involving a number of people. Uh, I, I'm not suggesting it's a cell necessarily, because as you say, sometimes you know the, the, the these people might you know love and adore isis isis may not even know they exist uh you don't know what that linkage is and i don't even know if they've they've explored that but you know when you're sending money over there and sending fighters over there to fight on behalf of isis uh and then i guess one of the guys was being investigated by the fbi and he basically said i thought he was just going over there to to teach english uh as opposed to this now i don't know how smug he was when he made that sort of a comment. Uh, But there's there's a pattern that's going on here. And I I guess we're wondering just how deeply involved the Canadian authorities are in this process Uh, uh, of gathering information. And certainly we receive information from from other sources. Of course, the Five Eyes are are, are very good at at that sort of thing and sharing that information. and, And it's paid off in some situations here. But we've been accused in the past, and you and I have had these discussions before, uh, by some other countries and some other agencies that Canada doesn't pull its weight in this situation with, mm-hmm. with terrorism uh, and, and and potential terrorists and, and the circumstances that surround all that right now. How do you I,
3: I think it's fair on occasion? I, I think certainly um, from my perspective as someone who used to work at CSIS, we were very, very good, I think, at dealing with our American counterparts as well as allies from around the world and sharing intelligence and sharing information and sharing analysis and sharing perspectives on things. I can't speak for the Crown. I can't speak for the Public Prosecution Service of Canada in terms of how they view these things. One other thing that may have some bearing on this bill, and, and this is purely speculative on my part, the fact that this was fundraising to send people abroad to join ISIS, i.e., it wasn't fundraising to sponsor attacks here in Canada. Did that play a role in terms of how serious the threat was being judged? I sincerely hope not, because when these when these offenses were being committed in 2013 and 2014, of course the caliphate, the caliphate, or so my my friend Ruben Shakespeare, the caliphate was created in 2014. This is sort of the height of ISIS uh, in those days, and and it, everyone knew what ISIS was all about. Was incredibly horrendous crimes they were committing against Yazidis against other people i would like to think that back then that you know all arms of the canadian government were treating this very seriously as a serious offense that required the absolute maximum uh, judicial attention again I, I don't have anything to suggest that they didn't but it just strikes me as this is an odd case where it took the Americans to give this guy 20 years and let's read the bill if he'd been found guilty in Canada, do you think he would have gotten 20 years for financing ISIS? I I don't think they they would have gone that far. We've we've had cases where people, have, like in the Toronto 18 case, um, they were given time served, four years in yeah. prison for a plot to, to, to explode three one ton bombs. So there's a valid question Canadians could can ask. It, you know, further to your point, are we taking terrorism seriously enough? And is is our is our court system um, coming down with sentences serious enough to deal with terrorism? I don't know what the answer to that question is.
0: Well, and as you say, there there are a couple of different facets to this. So you know, there's the, the judicial one, there's the, the intelligence area, and then there's the political one. And uh, you have to deal with all three of them because I think one – falls apart the whole thing falls apart if one of them doesn't have that same commitment i guess mm-hmm. uh, of those three areas and we've already talked about the political commitment or lack of commitment when it comes to you know offering resources and supplying resources for intelligence and and uh, you know, i i know that that resonates in, uh, right up until you know the politicians say mm-hmm. well we can't afford to do that you know we're going to spend mm-hmm. it here instead and that's that's a problem mm-hmm. but the other element is 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 there a, a higher level of concern within the intelligence community uh, and th- who wishes that they could do more uh, if they had those resources right now. Is, is, that, is that a discussion that's going on behind closed doors?
3: Oh, I'm sure, because certainly in my time there, and bear in mind, I've been gone for seven and a half years now, You know, there were always more investigations and more cases that you could look into than you had resources for. Now, no, not all of them were you know, threat-to-life plots, that it weren't all sort of a, the 11th hour of things happening. But when you're an intelligence service like CSIS, the, you always have more work than, than you have people to do the work, and, and your, your fear, your, your constant fear when you work in this business is, in a, we to say, we, you're only as good as your last failure, so if you didn't have the resources necessary, and as a consequence, something happened, and, and you, know, you people ask, well, why didn't you stop this guy? Well, we didn't have the people to look at him, or you know he didn't cross our radar. No one wants to hear that. Nobody cares when you get it right. They want to point fingers at you when you get it wrong. So if you don't have the necessary men and women and the surveillance and, and all the other investigators and, and intelligence officers and law enforcement officers to look at these cases across Canada, and something goes boom in the night or boom in the day, then then people are going to start you know being they're going to cast cast blame on you, and and so you know I, I don't suppose cases in the RCMP is any different than the other agency bill. Everyone wants more resources, they want more money, they want more ability to do things. But when you're talking about organizations that at the end of the day, the, the purpose is to help keep keep Canadians safe, whether it's, you know, run-of-the-mill crime or organized crime or biker gangs or terrorists, whatever, we've got to make sure these organizations are outfitted um, to the, you know, the best ability possible. And I'm not convinced that that a series of Canadian governments, not just this government, but a series of Canadian governments has taken law enforcement and security intelligence seriously enough to ensure that the resources required are, are there for these for these organizations to use.
0: Uh, we've talked about CSIS. I mean, there are other agencies that are involved in this. We are CMP, of course, uh, on, a, on a national level. How would you how would you rate the, the information sharing that goes on between agencies? Is it is it free flowing? Is there a, a, a mutual understanding here? Because I know sometimes the uh, it you know it gets very territorial.
3: I would say it's pretty good. It's never perfect. It certainly is better than it used to be. So, you know, to take your listeners through a quick history lesson, when CSIS was created back in 1984, it came out of the old RCMP Security Service. A decision was made to create a civilian security intelligence organization. Uh, There was some bad blood. There's no question in the early days. The RCMP wanted to keep it. They didn't have it anymore. So, But I've certainly been involved in meetings with the RCMP uh, throughout my career where, where, you know, information was shared. and You have to share it very carefully because, as I said, CIA doesn't want its intelligence to be used in an investigation and appear in court. That's, that's a no-no when you work in intelligence. But there are mechanisms that have been established over the decades uh, to ensure intelligence sharing. And I know there's a very, very a daily, um, you know, backing uh, back and forth flow of information from organizations. And we, we also had some relationships with law enforcement agencies, uh, you know, both provincial and municipal across the country. I remember meeting with the police forces from, from coast, to coast to coast to coast to talk about, you know, terrorism and radicalization when I was at CISA. So there was an effort made to make sure that information was shared. Uh, could more be shared? Probably. But again, there was always that, that sort of 11th hour fear bill that if I give you this piece of information, and you run with it, and it ends up in a court that it came from CSIS and it was an intelligence source, that's a bad day for CSIS, and it has some serious implications for how the organization can work. So, yes, there are rules in place. There are lines in the road. um, But I would say that, generally speaking, based on my experience, and, again, it's a couple years out of date, that the information sharing was, was pretty good in Canada.
0: Phil Gursky, as always, Phil, thanks so much for this. Always enjoy our conversations. Me too, Bill. You have a great day now. You too. Uh, Phil, of course, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting and a former thesis analyst. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free